welcome to Vet Talk, the veterinary podcast. I'm Dr. Nathan. Thanks for listening. This is an informational podcast, and we hope you find it a valuable tool to help you understand veterinary medicine and how to better care for your animal. If you want to contact us, please reach out to theveterinarypodcast at gmail.com. You can find a complete list of the podcast episodes on SoundCloud or by going to lickingvalleyvet.com and finding the education page. While you are there, take a look at our blog section for more helpful information. You can also follow Licking Valley Veterinary Hospital's Facebook page if you want regular updates on released podcasts, blogs, and videos. If you find this information helpful, please feel free to make a donation to the continuation of this content. There is a link to do this on the webpage under the podcast list. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope this information is helpful to you. Welcome back. In the last episode, we began our conversation on how we handle sterility with bacteria in veterinary medicine. If you haven't listened to that episode, please do so now, because I will be referencing it a lot, and this is finishing that conversation. So let's talk about how the public has viewed sterility in veterinary medicine. This is probably best discussed by some of the lawsuits brought against Dr. Pohl. He's a great example. I really don't know the man, so I'm not commenting on him, just what surrounds him. But to be clear, I don't like him. Not because of anything he has particularly done, it's because when I'm about to complete a procedure, so many clients say, Well, Doc, I saw Dr. Pohl do it this way. Why aren't you doing it that way? The first few times, I thought it was cute. After that, it started to annoy me. I don't have cable, and I don't typically go home to search YouTube to watch other vets do work I've been doing all day. Maybe I should so I could see they have the same issues with people that I do. And so when clients ask me to do it the way Dr. Pohl does it, In my head, I usually say, so, I don't know how Dr. Pohl does it. So if you want it done that way, maybe you should call Dr. Pohl out to do it. In reality, I don't say that. I just go on with the procedure. Of course, in the profession, Dr. Pohl is well debated, and I have seen articles for and against the way he practices. I recently read an article from a magazine, DVM 360, how he was placed on professional probation for negligence for, I quote, failing to intubate the dog during surgery, failing to use an electronic monitoring device during the procedure, failing to request assistance locating the dog's uterus during surgery, and failing to wear a surgical cap, mask, and gown during the procedure. He also had a second complaint, and I will read a section of DVM 360 for you explaining that. The administrative law judge who reviewed both complaints concluded that the state had failed to prove that Dr. Pohl was negligent or incompetent in his care of the dog or horse. But LARA officials rejected part of the judge's proposed decision and placed Dr. Pohl on probation for a minimum of one day, not to exceed one year, for failure to intubate the dog during the procedure, failure to wear a surgical mask and gown during the procedure, and failure to clip the hair around the horse's wound prior to suturing the wound, according to court records. 
Dr. Cole was ordered to serve a probationary period, pay all costs incurred in complying with the terms of that order, and complete continuing education in the areas of small animal surgical preparation and monitoring and small large animal aseptic technique. Breaking that down for this episode, we can just talk about the things regarding percent sterility. The first part of the complaint was he didn't wear a surgical cap, mask, and gown during the procedure. So sure, wearing a cap, mask, and gown would increase the percentage of sterility, but as we have discussed, that is not always necessary to have a successfully sterile surgery. If surgery after surgery not wearing a cap, mask, and gown caused infections, then sure, we start adding those things. But at least from my experience, it is not always required to reach the percent sterility to keep the animal healthy. It's an extra step to help achieve that percent. I wear a mask and cap to increase the percentage in case something goes wrong and I need that extra percent to prevent a problem. I know doctors who have performed many more surgeries and many more in-depth and complicated surgeries than I have. And while practicing have maybe worn a mask once in their life, and I think that was under duress from us younger vets. So was Dr. Paul and my mentor wrong not to wear a mask? I mean, I don't know the entire circumstances of Dr. Paul's situation. I just read one magazine article. So I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying, go to a vet you trust to make the decisions to appropriately take care of your animal. One incidence of a case gone south does not mean that your vet's protocols do not work. If you don't trust that vet to do a good job, should you be going there? If something does go wrong, should you, as a non-medical professional, nitpick how a procedure was done to a professional? I mean, sure, Dr. Pohl didn't wear a mask, and this one patient had a problem. But if he completed 100 other surgeries like that with no problems, as a professional, he's not going to blame his lack of a mask for that one incident. Sometimes people are biased because they have only seen the procedure once, and that one time it went wrong. With the horse they mentioned, I have often not clipped the hair around the wound. I have Amish clients. I tried, but for some reason I just couldn't find an electrical socket at their barn for me to plug it in my clippers. I have sutured horses together in the middle of a field where practically there is no place to find a good electrical outlet. And even though I have tried battery powered clippers, the battery just always seems to be out when I need it. Once I performed surgery on a horse, the horse was in a barn in the middle of a field. There was no electricity there. Oddly enough, the horse in a barn in the middle of a field was in a stall that had four walls. Do you see my problem? I wasn't too worried about clippers since I had to use a sledgehammer to take down one wall to get to the horse. I'm more apt to use clippers at my clinic where they are available with a reliable source of electricity, but I've never put a cap and gown on for a laceration on a horse. This horse naturally rolls in mud and I don't have indoor surgical facilities. What is one of the hairs from my head, which I do wash somewhat regularly, going to do compared to the rusty nail the horse cut itself on? The risks are my hands and I wear gloves to cover those. I don't know if what Dr. Pohl did was wrong, 
It does not sound horribly wrong when we are talking about sterility, but I, as a vet, want people to use me who trust my judgment. I do surgery a certain way because in most cases it works very well and gives the results that are appropriate for the situation. I'm a trained professional. Sure, things go wrong regardless of what precautions are taken. If something is consistently occurring wrong, that makes me rethink how I perform a procedure. But usually vets have a set of procedures they follow to make sure your animal is well taken care of. My outdoor vet style may be different from a vet in downtown New York, but we are each trying to give your animal the best care possible. And we each have different situations and cases that come to us. I'm trained to apply the appropriate steps necessary. My clients trust me to do that. I certainly strive to always improve and be better, but also be realistic. If I can perform a procedure by completing steps A, B, C, and D, and then perform two more procedures, all preventing infections, then I think that is acceptable and good for my clients. Better than not getting those three cases seen because I perform steps A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P to get one patient seen especially if the results were going to be the same regardless of which way I approach the scenario. Here's a good case example that typically each of my veterinary students gets to go through. We just finished a spay, no antibiotics given. We clipped and scrubbed the dog, used sterile gloves and sterile instruments, and then sent the animal home. It develops no infection. Then a dog comes in and has been bitten by another dog. Both dogs were in a big fight, rolling around in dirt and mud puddles. The dog that comes in has a big muddy laceration on its side. The bleeding has stopped, but it definitely needs sutured together. The owner agrees to treatment. My vet student starts giving me a list of things they want to do to get the dog better. We get pain meds for the owner to give, we anesthetize the dog, then they typically want to gown and glove as the technician is sterilizing the wound with scrub and flush. That's where I start slowing them down. Did we put on a sterile gown for the spay where we opened a body cavity? No. And it did not get an infection. So I know this looks bigger and badder, but is it? It's a bigger hole, but what is the difference here? In their mind, this wound is going to be completely sterilized because it's big and bad and needs to get all of the nasty infection out of it. I'm like, that's not going to happen we will reduce the contamination and we want to prevent further contamination with anything bad, but this wound has already been infected. It's dirty, dog mouth dirty. Dogs eat poop. Poop is on their teeth, then was inserted into our patient's body. So we clip the wound and get the hair and debris out, flush it if necessary to remove big particulate, and then we scrub it. I wear gloves and use sterile equipment, but have I realistically gotten all the bacteria out of this wound? No, I just haven't. I'm not going to be able to, so I put the dog on antibiotics after I suture the wound together appropriately. I know when I can't prevent something from happening, i.e. bacteria in the wound, my job is to then make sure new stuff doesn't get in and we kill the bad stuff that's left inside. We adapt to the situation. We adapt to the reality. 
I make sure to get out as much bacteria as possible and not add any bacteria that could do harm. But it's infected. I know it. So how do we deal with this? With bacteria, we can add antibiotics. That's our ace in our sleeve. When all the steps we could take in the ivory tower would not sterilize a wound, we can put stuff in the body to fight off bacteria. And that is what vets and doctors are trained to do, add antibiotics when appropriate. When our scrubbing and sterile equipment just don't do enough because the bacteria are already there, we are past preventative medicine and into treating. So as doctors, we are constantly playing the game to lower the percent of bacterial infection. We use our experience and training, and sometimes, in the case of Dr. Pohl, perhaps some legal pressure to affect how we make these decisions. Obviously, there is debate on how to handle sterility. Dr. Pohl and his cases have proven this, and I see it debated and discussed in the academic forums and magazines. Some of the things I do are making my fellow vets and professors cringe, and others are like, goodness, he gets way too carried away with sterility. These are good discussions for professionals to have so we as professionals can continue to grow. It keeps us on our toes. I certainly have made improvements throughout my practice years and continue to learn to try to be better for my clientele and patients. People come to me who trust me to do a job. Do I always wear sterile gloves for re repairing a dirty infected wound? No. There is already infection there. And it, sometimes sterility is hard to maintain when you're working in a barn or a mud pit. I'm taking other steps to help the wound heal and kill off infection, while mainly trying to not put anything worse in the wound. People trust me to make the right decisions and it seems to work. Guess what? It works a lot of the time for me and a lot of the time for other veterinarians because we all had training and experience and know how to achieve our goals. So people who come to me trust me. And I hope I have earned that trust enough that they listen to my recommendations. People go to their human doctors and should trust them too, and should listen to their recommendations, because they are trained to handle human illness. What is dangerous is when people don't understand the principles that go into making decisions on care. And that's where we get back into our discussion on COVID-19. Allow me one more story from vet school. We were on an ambulatory rotation at a barn. We were doing joint injections on a horse. We had done these before at school. Big sterile prep, sterile gloves, all that jazz. And putting stuff into joints is like dangerous, right? And an infection gets in there and you have problems. So the professor was like, well, what do we do? We are in the field have to inject this horse and we used all our gloves at our last case. We have betadine and alcohol left. Well, we scrubbed the horse with betadine and alcohol. Didn't bother clipping the site like we did at school and we just made sure we scrubbed well enough to soak through the hair. But then what? No gloves? Well, we had betadine and alcohol. We scrubbed our hands and pretended we had gloves on. Hey, it worked. Not every place in the world is a fully equipped vet school. Sometimes you have the back of a truck and a barn light to work with. Another story, not from vet school. I grew up on MASH. Hawkeye Pierce is my mental picture of a surgeon. 
doing meatball surgery in Korea to save lives and come up with unique ways of getting the job done. In one episode, supplies were running low. They ran out of gloves, so they sterilized their hands in alcohol to perform surgery. Goodness, when would this happen? Could a global pandemic could a global pandemic disrupt medical supplies so that even in a first world country, doctors couldn't get gloves? Yeah, when I saw glove shortages, I was making plans for how my clinic would deal with it. Spays would be canceled, neuters I would continue to do to help keep the pet population at bay and keep some money flowing in the practice, but I would do them with an alcohol betadine scrub on my hands gloves, I would save my sterile gloves for the big procedures that I knew required more sterility. Then I would have to scrounge more as more things went on back order. This didn't happen. The state just stopped us from doing certain surgeries and supplies eventually came back. But discussions I had with other professionals were like, OMG, we can't do it like that. We just can't perform surgery. I'm like, we can't. These are different risks, but let's improvise. This is a pandemic. The entire world is affected. We still have certain things we need to get done. We can still get things done, and as professionals, we know where we can take risk, but how still to achieve the end result safely? I don't know. Maybe that is compromising too much and taking too many risks. But sometimes you have to get the job done and just improvise with what you have. Sometimes we forget that the fancy way isn't the only way to do things. When I doused my hand with alcohol and betadine three different times and scrubbed the horse and aseptically injected it, bacteria were kept out. Sure, it was more of a pain to do because the alcohol accentuated every cut on my hand, but we achieved a sterile environment with no gloves in a dusty barn. So yes, with knowledge, we didn't do everything the proper book way, but we got the job done effectively. That's what my training gave me, the ability to adapt to work smarter and safer than a non-trained professional. War Eagle for that. So what do we do in a pandemic with a virus like COVID-19? How do we protect ourselves with the proper protection to prevent infection? Well, we listen to our human doctors. They have been trained for this kind of scenario. And we listen to our leaders who are listening to our human doctors. That is what we need to do. We trust doctors for the rest of our health. Let's not abandon their advice now. So what are our doctors trying to achieve? Immunity and herd immunity. When our bodies have an immunity, we can fight off disease. When a certain percentage of the population has immunity, we can keep infection rates low by having a herd immunity. When the majority of people, the herd, are immune to a disease, then they act like shields to the people who are not immune. Herd immunity lowers the percentage of people infected, and then the disease doesn't fill hospitals over their breaking points. So how do we get herd immunity? Well, everyone gets infected and dies or fights COVID-19 off. Or we find a way to have our body stimulate an immune response without getting infected. That is what a vaccine does. A vaccine puts control back in our hands. Natural infection is erratic and deadly and works on the virus's timetable. Vaccine protection works on our timetable. 
Almost like magic, with a vaccine, a body can attain an immunity which makes a chance that your immune system can fight off the disease much higher. Are vaccines 100% protection? No, nothing is. But it decreases the chances of getting the disease or how severe the disease may be if you get it. If the vaccine protects 8 out of 10 people exposed to the disease, and then of the 2 out of 10 people that are not 100% protected, prevents it from causing the need to be hospitalized 50% of the time, wow, then that is a 9 out of 10 chance I'm not going to die. And then that chance is actually even higher because so many people have immunity, i.e. herd immunity, there's less chance that I will be exposed, which helps my survival rate even more. You can always tell me the odds, especially when the odds are stacked in my favor. Vaccines do that, stack the odds in my favor. But guess what? That is the fancy way of doing things. How do we stack the odds in our favor when we don't have vaccines or natural herd immunity? I don't do a surgical scrub on my hands before every surgery I do. But I do wear gloves, unless I do a barn scrub in alcohol. I know bacteria well enough that if I have scrubbed an animal, wear sterile gloves, and wash my hands throughout the day, that the animal I am doing surgery on is likely not going to get an infection. The same with COVID-19. Hand washing, social distancing, mask, simple things, not fancy. Until we can get fancy vaccines and herd immunity, we just don't know how bad it would be without simple things like mask and hand washing. So listen to your doctors and wear a mask. These recommendations are the recommendations of your doctors who are well trained and experienced. When people with little scientific training debate wearing or not wearing a mask, so much is glossed over that they come to the wrong conclusions. For example, I rewrote this episode multiple times because I glossed over so much bacteria and sterility discussion that I just feel it doesn't do justice to all the steps I and other professionals am taking to keep an animal healthy. It's hard to sum up years of training in a few specific examples. So realize, when we are told to wear a mask, it is because we are looking for simple things versus complex steps an entire country can do to lower the case rate. Kentucky, for example, has less ca cases than other places and has been trying to be conscious of how it handles cases. I think Governor Bashir has saved lives with a proactive approach. The CDC says 8% of Americans get the flu each year. That's roughly 26 million people. Of course, humans are used to the flu. What if we treated COVID like we treated the flu, i.e. just living with it versus trying to prevent it? and 8% of Americans got COVID instead of the 1% that has it. Or would it be just 8%? COVID is said to be three times more infective than the flu. So would it be 24% of people that would get COVID? Well, back to what we do know. Flu cases in a year. 26 million Americans a year are infected with flu. 20% of those 26 million Americans require hospitalization. Over 5 million cases of flu need hospitalized. That's more beds than we have at a single moment. So this has a devastating effect on us if we do nothing with COVID-19. The death rate may rise extremely high. 
it is killing us and it is killing our economy which will kill more people and ruin more people's lives without a strong economy we can't pay for the health care we need or continue to pay our rent and medical bills if people don't have shelter and don't have health care this virus will kill even more we need a healthy nation to have a strong economy if the economy worsens the virus will just worsen we have to adapt to survive and we have to take seriously this threat so we can come up with effective ways to get a strong economy back the first step is listening to doctors advice on how to go through daily life when that is done then it is reopening the economy so it does not collapse after all what good is an economy if everyone's dead speaking of the economy Here's why I think we have to really buckle down on what the doctors are telling us. The unemployment rate was about 10% in 2009 during the Great Recession. Many listeners can remember those challenges that we faced. That went down to about 3.5% for years. And then with COVID-19 in 2020, jumped up to 20.5 million people being unemployed, which is roughly an unemployment rate of 14.75%. The people infected with COVID-19 are off work. Remember, that is 3.5 million people off work to COVID-19, not just the regular unemployment. That's 17% of 20.5 million unemployed people. If we weren't fighting COVID as much as we are, would that be 6.5 million people more off work? 10 million? You know what that is getting closer to? 25% unemployed. That was the unemployment number from the Great Depression. We don't want to reach that number. How much closer would we be if we weren't doing the steps we are doing? What would that do to the economy and prosperity of America? We have to take COVID-19 and the recommendations to prevent it seriously. In vet school, I didn't know that I did not have to complete a surgical scrub on my hands before every surgery to reach the percent sterility to protect the patient. In the real world, I have realized if I take other steps to provide sterility, I am covered and still have backups for if things go wrong. With COVID-19, we don't know all the answers yet because this disease has only been around for less than a year. Less than a year and it has done all this to the world. We do know that social distancing, hand washing, and masks help. So until we get a vaccine and better understanding of how to defeat the disease, until we learn what steps we have to and don't have to take to prevent the disease, we need to do those things we know work. Abraham Lincoln once said, you can't trust everything you read on Facebook. And it's true that you can't trust everything you read on Facebook. I'm going to finish this episode just debunking a few of those Facebook rumors that are trying to dispel the things that work for COVID-19. First, I see some Facebook posts that want to make everyone believe that COVID-19 is an unimportant disease. I, say, I see Facebook posts stating how the amount of people infected and who die from this disease aren't that big of a deal. And yes, they're right. In 1,000 years, no one is going to care who died from COVID-19. Again, we are working to make sure that person that dies is not your grandmother or your brother or your children. Yes, the human race does not care who dies here. Yes, Dr. Nathan does care who dies. Because he's selfish and doesn't want to see his family and friends suffer. Facebook also complains about various aspects of social distancing. 
six feet is the number everyone talks about. Is that a guarantee you won't get the disease at seven feet? No. That is where they find, in most cases, it limits the spread. The further you are from a person, the less chance you can get a disease. I scrub an animal three times to make sure we lower the percent of getting an infection. Will that prevent all infections? No. They have found that three times will prevent an acceptable number of infections from occurring that you don't have to do a third scrub in most cases. Maybe two times prevents 90% of infections and the third prevents that extra 10%. Well, that's a cheap and easy and not a very time-consuming step. One more scrub. I just saved 10% more of my patients from problems. You may stand three feet away from people and not get COVID. You may be eight feet and get the disease because someone talks loudly and projects viral particles further. That minimum of six feet is shown in most cases to decrease the spread. Just like scrubbing three times will mostly decrease the chances of infection, but sometimes it doesn't. So we have our own immune systems giving us a percent of keeping the disease from us. Then we can increase that percent by proper social distancing, just like I add that third scrub to kill bacteria. That increases the chance we won't need a hospital bed and increases the chances that the hospital bed won't be full when we need it. Then there is the mask in Facebook. First, to those of you out there that can't breathe and mask, I've worn masks for hours doing surgery on your pets. You can breathe. You may be hotter, but you can breathe. You are getting proper oxygen content. It's not like someone has you in a chokehold. So don't talk to your vets and doctors about not being able to breathe. On Facebook, I also saw a post, and I can't find it now because it bothered me so much when I read it, I blocked the person posting. Anyway, before I blocked it, I fact-checked it and have seen others of various arguments similar to that post that mask, specifically the N95, is not effective against COVID-19 because the virus is smaller than the mask can filter. So yeah, there is a viral size range. The virus could be this big or this small, and it's still the virus. Just like some people are six feet tall and some are four feet tall. So yes, some of the virus may slip through, but most of the virus will not. Again, it's a percentage, about 95% if I read correctly. When you have a mask on, you're preventing a small amount of virus from getting to you, but mostly blocking the spread of the virus from leaving you. And yes, a small percentage of virus can get through. But when you pair that with social distancing and your body's own immune system, it is likely the virus would not spread. Also, think where the mask is. The virus is likely going to enter your body on one of the holes on your face. Being trained as a surgeon, I know how easy it is for your hands to touch things they shouldn't. And if your hand has touched something infected with COVID-19, you should not touch your face. Guess what the mask is covering? Your face. So if you touch a doorknob that has COVID, then scratch your nose, the virus is blocked on the mask. These last two episodes went over a lot of numbers and different ways to look at things. I hope it shows that there are a lot of possibilities in the world and excuse the pun, more than one proper way to skin a cat. We as vets use the knowledge we have earned to make decisions to keep your animals safe. So do human doctors. 
it's not always going to be the grade A ivory tower treatment that is required to keep your animals and yourself safe. Sometimes it's a pair of gloves. Sometimes it's a mask. With COVID, we are all learning and trying to figure out so we can treat it as casually as we do other medical procedures and problems. We aren't there yet. I can't travel to Europe because in America we don't have COVID-19 under control. I don't think Amelia Clark wants to come here because COVID is not under control. Let's give our bodies every fighting chance it can to have a better percentage of not getting infected with COVID-19 by listening to our doctors. Our doctors, who just like veterinarians, use years of training to make sure your pet doesn't get infected with nasty bacteria. And while doing that, take heart that your actions will increase the chances that Amelia Clark and I will get to have dinner together. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Nathan. I hope this information was helpful to you and gives you a little more perspective on the world. If you want to reach out to us, email us at theveterinarypodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to tell your friends about our podcast and check out LickingValleyVet.com for information on blogs, videos, and the complete list of podcasts in our education section.